Hi, I'm Kate LaVale. And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group. We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems. With more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's becoming harder than ever to understand the world around us. So we're on a mission. To combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom. To connect the dots and answer the so what. And empower you to do the same. Hi, welcome to this episode of the Canary Group. I'm Kate LaVale. And I'm Michael Vieira. And today we are joined by a very special guest. Maria, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I am Maria Robson-Morrow. I work at the Intelligence Project at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. And my passion and background is intelligence, specifically intelligence cooperation, both on the state level, so uh, government agency to government agency, and also the public to private sector level. And uh, like Michael, I have a background in private sector intelligence. I'm delighted to be with you here today. We are so excited to have you here. This is this is an absolute treat for us. I think we were talking about naming this show Friends, Foes, and Frenemies in, in our conversations leading up to, to this conversation it sounds like there's a lot of very dynamic changes happening as far as cooperation, both nationally and um, within corporate as well. But it would be it would be great to sort of get a sense of where you think the most interesting sort of changes are occurring. Well, I think this is a great topic. And as we were brainstorming leading up to today, I was increasingly excited to tackle this intersection of geopolitics and cooperation, specifically involving intelligence, because what I find is with any geopolitical issue you can name or think of, there is some undercurrent of intelligence. There are agencies that are tackling it and they're not doing it alone. We can find almost no situations in which an intel agency is truly operating alone. And if they are, it's probably a mistake. Uh, so there's so many undercurrents of cooperation under the surface and occasionally they pop up to the surface and uh, I'll be going along reading the news and say, oh my goodness, there's an intel agency cooperating with another one, or there's a, a group that's actually made the media, which is so rare. And of course, they'd likely prefer that they didn't. Um, so I'm conflicted when that happens. However, uh, I'm really excited today to delve more into what does that cooperation look like? What are some of the entities that our listeners might or might not have heard about that we can talk about? Wonderful. Can I ask a stupid question? No such thing. So... <laughs> Like, just wait, <laughs> hold my beer. Um, does the um, sort of intelligence, do the intelligence relationships mirror what we see in the news or are they kind of, could you look at those relationships as sort of um, early indicators for shifting alliances or are they usually lagging behind? How does that, is it sort of a one-to-one -one ratio? Does that make sense? It absolutely does. It's not a super question whatsoever. And um, I would argue that actually they don't necessarily mirror what we're seeing in terms of geopolitical alliances. Often they will. And so there are certain 
players whom we can be sure are collaborating. For example, no surprise that the UK and the US share intelligence of the special relationship includes intel cooperation and has. Since we can delve into the history if you would like. Uh, since 1943, I love that. Yeah. 1942 would be the origins of the actual structured intel cooperation between the two, originating in signals intelligence and broadening out. Um, but when it comes to what's going on under the, the surface, it isn't quite necessarily paralleling what we're seeing in geopolitical alliances. And uh, one way in which that manifests is that um, we can see intelligence cooperation over time that has withstood breaks in foreign policy. It doesn't always happen. So again, if we look at the US and UK, and I hope that we'll talk more about the Five Eyes Alliance of the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, because uh, I don't think I can have this conversation with you without talking about Five Eyes. But um, there have been instances most prominent example is New Zealand opposing U.S. policy when it came to nuclear-equipped submarines. And there were ramifications for New Zealand's inclusion within intelligence sharing in the Five Eyes. But often what we see instead is official top-level foreign policy disagreements, but under the surface, the cooperation endures. It's so integrated. These agencies are used to working with each other. There's trust established among players, but also institutional level of cooperation, sometimes using the same systems uh, that tends to endure. So that's with really established longer term cooperation, where the really short answer is that it doesn't necessarily follow the geopolitical winds and the differences at the top levels. There's this undercurrent of sharing. But when it comes to more tit for tat, more targeted intelligence sharing for a specific mission or problem, then yes, it does follow the geopolitical winds. And the war in Afghanistan would be an example of that, where there was cooperation taking place uh, that was very much tied to the foreign policy objectives and the military objectives there. So what we're seeing on the surface in terms of who was involved in Afghanistan was mirrored under the surface with intel cooperation, but uh, it doesn't have to be. I find that incredibly reassuring <laughs> to know that the that the intelligence fabric doesn't mirror sort of one for one the geopolitical sort of ups and downs, that there is a level of stability there that is quite comforting. Absolutely. And there is stability when it comes to alliances or intelligence cooperation agreements that have endured over time and where there is that level of integration. But uh, Kate, when you asked that question, I realized I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention that we sometimes see cooperation that doesn't mirror what you're seeing on the surface because it could be with a partner that you wouldn't necessarily want people to know you're cooperating too closely with. Uh, so for example, uh, the US has cooperated with Pakistani intelligence over time and that hasn't necessarily percolated to the surface, uh, isn't that well known, and often would be more specific to a target, to a specific operation or objective of mutual interest, as opposed to the more ongoing sharing that we see in those more entrenched alliances with traditional partners. Since we're talking about friendships and alliances, let's talk about, I think, the grandfather of the, uh, I think, of the Western um, intelligence sharing. And you mentioned it earlier, you talked about Five Eyes. Could you give us a little bit of background on what Five Eyes is? Delighted to. And Michael, I know you're, you're quite familiar with this as well. Um, so please do jump in. But uh, Five Eyes is such a fascinating case, as you said, in terms of historical cooperation into the present. The Five Eyes are the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and it originated as a signals intelligence alliance and now encompasses a much broader spectrum of 
human intelligence, military intelligence, and so on. And the the term five eyes comes from the idea of for X eyes only. So for Canadian eyes only, American eyes only. Uh, and that's where five eyes came from. But if you speak with historians, intelligence scholars, they might refer to it as UKUSA, UK-USA, uh, which comes from the original agreement signed in 1946. Although it's not even really a proper agreement with, it's not a treaty uh, with signatories, anything like that. It's a collection of appendices, various documents. There are some redactions, but it was declassified in 2010, which delighted the intel nerds among us, being able to finally see evidence of something that was incredibly secret. So to, to step back, to not get too far ahead of myself, um, we can trace this back to World War II. The Holden Agreement was something signed in 1942 or arranged in 1942 between the UK and US wartime second cooperation that led to what was called BRUSA, uh, B-R-U-S-A, Britain, USA, in 1943, and then Akuza in 1946. And in the name, we can see the signatories or the, the participating nations were primarily the UK and the US, but Canada, Australia, and New Zealand became members by 1955 when there's a revised agreement that came out and we can see they were all in there by then. So if we trace back the references to them in the original agreement, and my understanding is that Canada became a member quite quickly. Australia had some Soviet penetration of their intelligence services they had to clean up. But by 1955, all five of them were in and then the term five eyes originated over time. So this is really unusual. Michael, you called it the grandfather of intelligence sharing. It is unprecedented in its longevity and in the scope and integration of sharing. And, um, and, and what we've seen, as we mentioned earlier, is that the uh, cooperation has endured despite differences at the top levels. You see this remarkable level of familiarity and trust that's built up within the Five Eyes over time. And uh, one final note I'll, I'll make on this is it's endured beyond its original reason for existing. So World War II was the impetus for the US and the UK to collaborate on SIGINT, but then the common adversary of the Soviet Union really drew the Five Eyes together. And unfortunately now in 2023, that, uh, that specter of Russia as an adversary is not as historical as it used to be. But certainly in the 90s, the fact that Five Eyes endured speaks to the path dependency, the trust, the established structures and effectiveness, as opposed to the mutual threat that led to its establishment in the first place. So we could look at these things and saying it became, it was actually a organization built out of necessity. Uh, the Atlantic Charter in 41, and then the sharing of Ultra, which was the, the breaking of the, the German Enigma machine, right? And that was the highest level of intelligence that, uh, that was coming from the Allies and shared only between the Americans and the British and some of their allies. After the war, though, Winston Churchill, when he gave his famous Iron Curtain speech, he said, you know, we have to continue this on. And so we decided to continue it on and to expand it. But it's kept within mostly the English, the English, how do we say, the English speakosphere? I don't know. I don't think that's a word, right? Um, <laughs> but one of the conversations that you and I had talked about was the fact that it has, it has still been an English-speaking, Anglosphere kind of uh, organization. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting there is, of course, it comes out of the British Commonwealth um, plus the United States, but we don't see the entire Commonwealth represented. And we don't see certain English-speaking members mm. of the Commonwealth uh, represented there either. And so um, certainly 
the cultural similarities and the linguistic similarities have come up with Five Eyes over time. Um, Five Eyes has various systems within it, including the echelon um, again, surveillance system, which um, the French at one point called the Anglo-Saxon eavesdropping network. <laughs> so you see the Anglo-Saxon. I feel like that might have that. been like a little Certainly too on the nose. Indeed. So Echelon was actually a program, an NSA program initially to using with uh, the, the with the British, I think, GSCS. They were eavesdropping on the Russians, right? It was usually used to basically listen to uh, Russian uh, communication, but later it was used to expand to total telephony. So I think, I think global. Um, and we were using it to listen to, I think, a lot of intelligence on a lot of uh, a lot of different places and a lot of different people. It gained some notoriety, I think, in the in, in like the seventies and the eighties, and it was it was exposed. I think and people were seeing it as being used to spy on a lot of different people. Um, the program, so it has some notoriety. Would you agree with that, Maria? Okay. Absolutely, I would. And I've I've seen it more recently, so it's interesting hearing about origins back with GC yeah. and CS, even uh, which uh, government code cipher. Yeah. Um, yep. school, uh, predecessor of GCHQ. Um, but I certainly would agree on the notoriety and that French comment has always stuck with me because of this constant tension of France not being a member of Five Eyes, but being a partner of the Five Eyes member states in many different situations. So going back to the language question, there are countries that weren't included from the beginning that were in the Commonwealth, but weren't trusted uh, in terms of either either their, um, their alignment um, in values and objectives or their capabilities. So if we look at the declassified materials from World War II cryptography and second and intelligence cooperation, there's evidence that the British were very impatient with, for example, uh, Rhodesia, um, which was not really pulling its weight. And so what we see with Canada is that they were, I, with the caveat that Canada was wholly dependent on British systems at that time, didn't really have autonomous capabilities. We had something called the examination unit that was very beholden to British expertise. But uh, this idea that there were some countries that nurtured those capabilities and flourished and established autonomous entities after the war. So Canada, Australia, and New Zealand had capabilities that warranted inclusion, but then other countries had political situations. So South Africa, politically not the most reliable partner at that time, or other countries in the Commonwealth that simply didn't have the capabilities. So that's partly why we see certain countries that were part of the Commonwealth not included. And then there are other countries, such as South Korea, that are adjacent to the Five Eyes. And this actually traces right back to the original agreement. The Kuza agreement mentions what they call third parties. There are certain countries that are identified as valued partners, but they're not quite included as the core five. And that would be more because South Korea, uh, we can use an example here too and talk about Japan. I mean, Japan, because of Article 9, you know, is, is was they basically got rid of their intelligence system uh, after, right. you know, after the Second World War. And that was just something that they weren't really doing. That's changing. Uh, but where South Korea... Uh, also, South Korea was being modeled a great deal on their collection and I think on their intelligence on the U.S. system anyhow, right? So there's a great deal of compatibility. So it wasn't so difficult to, to integrate them in certain places, right? 
Absolutely. And those are such good countries to bring up, especially Japan. There are discussions and debates today where people argue that Japan should be part of Five Eyes. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But I think simply if we look at how the organizations evolved over time, it seems so path dependent and institutionalized and integrated based off the core five that I can't really see other countries being brought into that. Experience. I agree. Uh, I think actually, our, I think we originally met and I don't even know how long ago it was now. I'm going to say it was more than five years ago, but I think we originally met. We, we met actually on a discussion about Japan uh, cyber capabilities, intelligence capabilities, and some other things that you know, we're still, you, know, you and I are still kind of looking at some things there. Um, but there Definitely. is a change. I've seen a fundamental change, I think, in the Japanese view of, of where they are in security. And I think that they're making um, in small incremental steps, I think, to bring themselves up to a certain level. Um, and I think you and I have talked about, you know, um, is it time to, sh to start opening five eyes to outside of the English speaking world? Um, with, with Japan, I don't think they're ready yet, but I could see a time, uh, sometime in the near future, uh, where they might be somebody who could be brought in, but they still have, uh, I think a long way to go because they haven't got, I don't think that they've got the infrastructure in place entirely yet or the educational system in place to bring in a lot of people to start doing their own intelligence. Uh, that's, I'm sure there's some people who would probably reach out and tell me I was wrong, but I, that's something, that's my, my view of that. So that's really interesting. We'll, we'll see. Uh, actually there's, there's somebody who I think that we should, there's a person I used to, one of my performing professors uh, does a lot of study on this. And I'm sure if she's listening to this, she'll be very, she'll have a, quite a few things to say about this. So maybe we can have her on the show later and talk to us about that. But with five eyes, let's talk a little bit also too about then there are other countries in NATO. Uh, there are other countries that are doing intelligence. And, and, and you mentioned something to me a couple of weeks ago, uh, which I had never heard of. And I had to start doing digging in. But it's one of the reasons why I love talking to you, because you always have surprises like this. And it was? Absolutely. I wanted to bring up Maximator. And I'm delighted to hear you've done some digging and still want to talk about it, because that ensures that A, it's interesting, and B, I'm not making this up. Maximator is the closest I'm aware of to disproving what I said earlier about Five Eyes being unique and unparalleled. And I don't use the word unique lightly. The word unique is used too lightly. And here Five Eyes actually is unique. But Maximator is an intelligence network that's existed under the surface since 1976. And there was a Dutch professor of computer security, Bart Jacobs, who revealed it only a couple of years ago, and it has barely touched the radar since. So um, Maximator is also five countries, also an intelligence alliance of France, Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Denmark. And it is very difficult to find out anything about it. Uh, I've dug into it and had people say, well, we're not even sure it's still operational, but my suspicion is it is. Uh, and that they would probably be very happy that we can't tell whether it is or not. But this idea of five countries that, again, are effectively collaborating primarily in the SIGINT domain to tackle common threats. And uh, so I was encouraged as an intelligence scholar and historian looking at this. I mean, this is great that Five Eyes isn't the only case in which countries are actually engaging this depth of collaboration. Uh, and Michael, you wanted to bring up 
a fun fact about Maximator. Oh, well, yeah, there's like actually a couple of fun facts, but the, the one was we were talking about Maximator and I was a long time ago, I was stationed in Germany and I remember during the Lentine season, they would, uh, they would brew these triple Bach beers and always give them an ATOR, an ATOR, Terminator, Dominator. And um, I said, I wonder if they named this after a beer. And then you mentioned that they actually did this. This was actually brought together at a fest tent in Germany in 1976. And sure enough, with some digging, I found out it was named after a beer that was served at the fest tent. So that's where Maximator came from, which I thought was brilliant. So thank you for allowing me to bring that up. Well, the origins of these names are fascinating. Five Eyes is fun enough with the play on for your eyes only, uh, but being named after beer is a whole different level. I read some other things saying that Maximator had worked the German BND, and I please forgive my German, but it's like the Bundesnachrichtendienst, uh, you know, the, I think it's the, the security service, the German security service, had actually been working with the CIA through what was thought at the time to be a Swiss private company that actually turned out to have been set up by the BND. And I think that's what they were using for some of their intelligence that came out, right? That's right. It was Crypto AG. And what I think really interesting about that is that Crypto AG has made the news. Uh, people have talked about this uh, hitherto unknown CIA BND operation uh, which affected something like 100 countries. Uh, Crypto AG was an encryption tech firm um, and secretly was being run by intelligence agencies, which uh, benefited from having this essentially backdoor. What could possibly um, go wrong? But, uh, what I find interesting there is... <laughs> I, I'm, I imagine there were many national security benefits that we won't necessarily know mm -hmm. about, um, but... Certainly a concern for the countries who discovered that their encryption technology was secretly being provided by a company owned by intelligence agencies. Um, but even with the revelations about crypto AG, I didn't see references to Maximator, mm. but I gather there is a connection under the surface, although the CIA is not. No, it's not. Um, well, it's funny, too, to go back to talk a little bit about the French. You said that they used the term Anglo-Saxon, which comes across as like a dirty word. And as Americans, no matter what our background, we are all, I guess, in their eyes, still Anglo-Saxon. And, you know, um, mm -hmm. it's funny, too, that the Soviets and the Russians use similar language when they're talking about it, because ultimately, I think everybody looks at the British as being because they're the, orig the originators of the Secret Intelligence Service, the SIS, and military intelligence that we know is MI5 and MI6 now. Um, but they're always seen as kind of like that that core of, uh, of intelligence in the modern era, right? And so that's... Uh, but maybe talk. Maybe we could talk just a little bit about the French and what are the French doing? I mean, you talked about there with Maximator, but are the French doing anything on their side? Or they, have they pulled their own intelligence groups together? Or? Yes. So this is an area in which I certainly claim no expertise, but the French are very active in this space. And my understanding, again, without having delved too deeply into this one, is that the French leveraged La Francophonie, the network of French speaking countries, um, to engage in intelligence sharing as well. The extent to which that happens, the services they're working with, I can't speak to. But my understanding is that France is very active. And another really interesting 
element of French cooperation is there is not as much of a line between public and private in France when it comes to the intelligence and security space as we see in the United States. So the U.S. has a multitude of different public-private cooperation entities, and Michael, if you and I started listing them, I think we'd run out of time here. Um, but there are legal restrictions on government agencies here in terms of sharing with industry partners to avoid preferential treatment, that if the U.S. government is going to share with American airlines, they have to make sure the same information is available to Delta and to JetBlue United to not give preferential treatment um, that could provide a business advantage. And the same limitations don't exist in France. So there aren't as clear structures and barriers of cooperation. The idea of the government giving an economic advantage to a French company that's embraced much more. So I would say that when we're thinking about the French intelligence cooperation structure, there is that state-to-state cooperation, there is the international network, uh, but also we do see this cooperation with industry in a slightly different way than we it's see It's a here. lot more pragmatic, I would say. Um, we we may use other words here in the West to describe it, but I think the French have a very much more pragmatic look of intelligence. It's much older too. I mean, it comes back from like Napoleon's use of intelligence services and yeah, he, he was the effective idea of, of bringing in intelligence. And I could actually say he was probably one of the earliest of of, of civil and military intelligence, a blending of that. Uh, and there's actually some really interesting things on that we could talk probably later about. But currently right now, what we're seeing in Northwest, you know, with Niger right now and uh, Mauritania and a couple of other places, we're seeing the French in there. And uh, you're seeing the cooperation that the French are having with various countries, even the English-speaking countries like Nigeria, the United States, and whatnot. It's um, Absolutely. Well, given the current situation, which is not really appearing quite as much in the news as I would expect or hope, given the ramifications here, um, what we see, as you're alluding to, is much more promising partnerships with English-speaking, with former British colonies um, then with some of the uh, La Francophonie, some of the French countries such as Mali, which is certainly not as hospitable to French presence as they used to be. Uh, abs- well, you know, I'm going to use the absolutely thing. And I'm, we have a jar that we put. When, we say, when I say absolutely or, or cases absolutely, we have to put a coin in the jar so that we, <laughs> yeah, we've got eventually we get jar. to trouble. <laughs> uh, but we, we're going to travel somewhere with that sometime. But I think that one of the things there is that I think in the public, in the political, we tend to look at countries as people that we work with and people we don't work. These are trustworthy. These are not trustworthy. But in reality, I think intelligence tends to be, we'll use that word again, more pragmatic. Um, and we have relationships with people that maybe politically we don't want to admit to that we had talked about earlier, say talking to Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, we're dealing with countries that may not have the best human rights records, but we have to work with them because you know you don't want to know how the sausage is made you just want to know that the sausage is there right i think that's that raises a really sort of interesting area to me at least that it's there is a sort of the the issue of trust takes on many different forms so on the one hand you have to trust the validity of the information and the reliability of it you have to question motives of course but you also, in a way, by sh- by keeping a line of communication open, especially with sort of less allied groups, you are putting a level of trust in them 
Um, and maybe it's based on, you know, mutually assured destruction or, you know, something to that extent. At the same time, I think one question I've had sort of reoccurring throughout this, looking at Five Eyes, looking at how the different companies or countries are allowed to participate, what are the criteria of, like, or even corporations? What builds trust? What builds trust and credibility? And are there certain indicators that that stand out as far as being really important to exhibit in order to start moving ahead in the, in the Intel game? The question of what builds trust is so fascinating. It's an element that I want to see more of when it comes to geopolitics, intelligence, security, because there's such a deep exploration of what constitutes trust in the psychology literature and all the work done there. But when it comes to our field, I think we could do so much more with it. So I'm so glad we're talking about it. What I've identified when I look at intelligence cooperation, and Michael, I'm sure you have views on this too, um, but part of it is, Kate, you mentioned credibility. So part of it is the track record. It's the credibility. It's the idea of if I share with Michael, I trust what he's going to do with that. Um, I know that he is going to use it for certain objectives that I agree with, but also um, that he's not going to stab me in the back and that also he is going to share with me if I need something down the road. So there's that idea of reciprocity, but not in a quid pro quo tit for tat way. What we see in terms of the private sector intelligence cooperation and also in Five Eyes is it's much longer term than that. It's much more of a sense of you are paying to play, you're, you are contributing to the pool to benefit from it. And when we look back at the Canadian decision to establish autonomous signals intelligence capabilities following World War II, it was to be part of Five Eyes, essentially. It was to be valued by the US and UK. The idea, and there are quotations from military officials who say this, of uh, if we give nothing, we'll receive nothing. So that idea, you are contributing, you're not just taking and vacuuming up, you have to contribute. So reciprocity, but in a a longer term credibility sort of way of this person can be trusted to handle the information appropriately and also to contribute or to share back later. So I think that's really important. But another element that I see permeating effective, again, ongoing cooperation is homophily. So the idea of having something in common. And this could be, as we talked about with Five Eyes, the common language, common background. So the Commonwealth partners in Five Eyes certainly have this history. They have the parliamentary structure. There are so many similarities in values um, and cultural similarities. And you see this in the private sector manifesting in different ways. It could be that we both worked in the financial sector and we bond over that. It could be um, any sort of different factor that builds this sense of being part of the same group. Maybe you're part of a different uh, professional association and you bond through that, you're part of a smaller group, uh, you have the same background. Something we see very commonly looking at intelligence professionals is they both worked at CIA and then they moved to the private sector and they have this bond, uh, or they both worked in the same State Department entity and they have this bond. So uh, some element of homophily, however that manifests. It's interesting you bring up uh, private sector intelligence because I think a lot of our listeners are not really aware that companies use intelligence outside of things. They think of intelligence and as business intelligence. They may think of it also as maybe as cybersecurity intelligence, you know, threat intelligence. But when you're talking about actual like physical security, um, you know, geopolitical or uh, threat intelligence, 
I don't think a lot of people are aware that a lot of companies are doing those sort of things. Uh, when I talk to people, they're very surprised by it. So could you talk a little bit, though, of some of the changes and what, in your mind, what do you think brought upon this sort of, I don't want to use the word revolution, but maybe this sea change in the idea of private sector intelligence? Absolutely. And there I'll add to the jar myself. We're going to strike it rich here. Intelligence. Really, it's... Oh, that's I great. Think, yeah. yeah. I mean, we <laughs> we don't need corporate sponsors for this show. We just need the absolute leisure. When you're on a beach somewhere, mm-hmm. think of me. Well, we'll at this point, we're going to Paris, Texas. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we get enough money, we're going to Paris, France. But right now, it's Paris, Texas. So, But as we, as we were saying, I'm sorry for... <laughs> well, in, in terms of private sector intelligence... There are traces of it, and uh, there's a scholar practitioner, Louis H. Passant, who's done a lot of excellent work looking at intermittent evidence of private sector intelligence over time, but there's a real emergence and rapid exponential growth from the 1990s and especially in the 2000s, where companies invest in corporate security, recognizing that they are vulnerable to, uh, say, civil unrest, a kidnapping, the crime. Uh, but then in the 2000s and really in the 2010s, we see this exponential growth of investment in intelligence to more proactively anticipate and mitigate risk to employees, to assets, to business interests and operations. And Michael, you mentioned business intelligence or competitive intelligence, market intelligence being really focused on competitors and the market and economic trends. And so this is its counterpart in the security and geopolitical realm. And we could have a whole different episode talking about the variation of how that manifests in different companies, what different teams are focusing on. But to bring it back to our core theme here, private sector intelligence practitioners who are focused on security and or geopolitics are really cooperating and see each other as on the same team. There's a common quotation, there's no competition in security. And it's this idea that, going back to the airlines as an example, if Delta and United and American are competing for passengers, they're competing for routes, for tickets, but they're not competing when it comes to security. And none of them wants a peer to be targeted by a terrorist group or uh, have pilots or Um, crew members who are caught in the wrong place at the wrong time in civil unrest, uh, for example, in Niger right now, uh, we can be sure that they're all sharing with each other to ensure that they are avoiding common risks. So um, that type of cooperation manifests in a lot of the same ways that we see, uh, that we've talked about in terms of uh, Five Eyes and others, the idea of trust, homophily, but Michael, as you mentioned, it is this different kind of actor who usually isn't really thought of. Well, one of the other interesting things, too, is that there's been also a recognition, I think, in the government space that they can work with the private sector. Um, and they've found places like in, say, travel security with the U.S. State Department, um, its Overseas Advisory Council, OSAC, or you've seen it with Department of Homeland Security or with the FBI. Um, you know, with its DSAC, where at least it, it says, you know, we have to work with these people and we have to, have, you know, we, it's more eyes to be able to see these problems. And everybody uh, is working, I think, more in, in partnerships. Now, that may come as a shock to some of our listeners and they're thinking, my gosh, this sounds, you know, kind of crazy. But no, it really isn't. Um, everyone's kind of taking a piece of the pie that they need, right? Uh, so it's, 
Could you maybe talk a little bit though? And you recently did a study, uh, which I thought was great. It was amazing. You talked a little bit about how companies had looked at the invasion of Ukraine. And could you, I don't know if you can share with us a couple of things that you've learned about that, but what were companies looking at and how proactive were they? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Ukraine case is phenomenal. Uh, that that particular study was a, a joint effort. I certainly can't take most of the credit for that. But the, the bigger picture of it is that uh, in the lead up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, different companies, intelligence teams were becoming aware of the potential and writing out scenarios and analyzing uh, the likelihood that Russia would actually take the step of invading Ukraine. And if so, what would be the ramifications for personnel, for supply chains, uh, for assets on the ground in Ukraine? And so this is an element, again, uh, where working in isolation doesn't work, uh, where companies and teams were talking to each other, they were benchmarking, they were bouncing off each other. Um, the likelihood, the risk assessment piece of it, but also the response of, are you taking action? And this has been true in so many cases that we know of, going back to Kate's question about on the surface, under the surface, in terms of developments we would have read about in the news and then what was happening under the surface. Uh, if we look at the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there was a lot going on under the surface in terms of companies, intelligence professionals benchmarking with each other in terms of how they were responding and how they were providing their executives with the information they needed to keep people safe. Oh, I, I just think that's that's a really interesting point to make, certainly during both the lead up to the war in Ukraine as well as COVID. C-suites were doing the same thing of checking in on, so what are you guys doing or what are you guys doing? And also we saw a number of corporations really kind of reimagining the relationship with government. And uh, there were a lot of, you know, Fortune, Fortune 100 companies that were reaching out to work with the CDC on messaging for COVID and really trying to shift that relationship a bit to be a bit more open so I think that's that's an interesting sort of reflection of that that we're seeing. It also makes me think too that what when we look at reputation and trust, there's you know a number of different indicators that show that trust has shifted away from those stalwart organizations like the federal government to corporations. And we saw corporations earning more trust. I don't know if that still holds or not, but certainly during the the pandemic, there was a strong shift of corporations being trustworthy, the government not so much. And that may, it seems like that may have also led to kind of an increase in trust in their intelligence as well. And on those types of communications that, and maybe it's just when we're in a situation where we're all in it together, like terrorism, like a pandemic, where there isn't that advantage to holding on to information, but it's it's heartening to see sort of a more openness, a, a willingness for collaboration and a recognition of what uh, sort of each party can bring to the table. I, uh, I think, Michael, you probably would agree with this, that we don't want to paint too rosy a picture. It certainly hasn't been a linear trend and uh, <laughs> the level of... <laughs> 
the level of investment and interest and support for intelligence capabilities really varies based off Mm -hmm. uh, the resources available within a company, the particular decision makers and uh, belief in the value of this, and also in the how top of mind crises Mm -hmm. are. So um, I think this can actually take us to tie in with NATO. We've mentioned uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization a few times, and I think we did want to make sure we brought it up. So uh, thinking about the role of crisis, it's really interesting looking at what's happened to NATO. And so I do see some parallels with the private sector here, but um, but moving back to the state level, NATO, like Five Eyes, lasted it Sorry. NATO, like Five Eyes, outlasted its original reason for mm-hmm. existing, which was the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was this question of what is the purpose of NATO? What is the purpose of this Western military alliance? Mm-hmm. Um, and will it expand to include all of the former Warsaw Pact members, uh, which some certainly joined, such as Poland, which is very important now. Um, so there's this idea that Um, A crisis can prompt the cooperation in the first place, but then crises rejuvenate or uh, really shine a light on what structure exists and is it the Mm -hmm. right one. And um, so we saw that, again, with the war in Afghanistan with NATO, um, that really that did coalesce, that brought members together in terms of uh, what they were doing, how they were doing it. Um, But... um, I was poking around in NATO's history recently, recent history, and found a paper uh, by a member of the NATO Defense College uh, who wrote that NATO without a clear and present danger wouldn't witness structured and transparent intelligence sharing. Hmm. And this is 2017. And I looked and went, I wonder what he's saying now with Ukraine, because that's exactly what we've seen. Uh, It's funny because after you're right about after 1991, people were scratching their head and wondering if there was a future for NATO. Uh, I I wanted to, I just Mm. wanted to say something, uh, a little clever thing that I had heard a long time ago, that the purpose of NATO was to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. Uh, which was, I think this is like an early, in the early 40s and 50s, but the idea was that well, you, they didn't that want... that sums it up. It was. Um, but I think that over time, we saw the French leave under de Gaulle in 66, I think they left NATO, uh, maybe earlier, but they, you know, they... They wanted to have their force de, the force de frappe, their, their own nuclear deterrent, and so they had sort of... They had pushed the United States bases out of France and whatnot. And we were going for a, I think, sort of a separate, but they came back into the structure, you know, I think late, uh, you know, in the, in the nineties or so. They saw, I think, uh, a purpose to come back into NATO. But the French have always, I think, had a, an idea of looking at it as saying that it should have a time limit because it should be European. Ultimately, Europe should be making its own decisions. And I think that we saw that NATO was becoming uh, before the Ukrainian invasion, I think we saw that there was, you know, maybe the the fracturing and the, the destruction of NATO. I think many um, people were watching it, wondering what the future was and whether it would fracture or, or simply become irrelevant. And there were certainly debates when I think back even to academic conferences a few years ago, people were debating the burden sharing and the uh, the percentage of GDP and this idea that everyone wasn't pulling their weight. Um, and now we're seeing a remarkable coalescence and we certainly wouldn't be the first or only ones to talk about 
uh, the war in Ukraine really giving NATO a reason to exist or uh, Vladimir Putin inadvertently really helping NATO coalesce. Um, but something that I don't think is as well known is that NATO has been bolstering its intelligence sharing capacity and was doing it even before the war in Ukraine in areas such as ISR, so Intel Surveillance Reconnaissance, uh, for about a decade now. There's been under the surface intelligence cooperation, not among all the member states, but uh, among more than a dozen of them, and also uh, what were at the time non-member states of Finland and Sweden, and now we see Finland part of the alliance, which is also a remarkable shift. Um, but there has been a lot of cooperation going on in the surveillance and recon, the ISR domain, and also in space, which I don't think is really uh, top really? of mind for people when we think of NATO. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, everyone's been laughing at the the creation of a space force. I mean, they made a, you know, there's a television program that's making fun of it, Steve Carell. And, but it actually is very forward thinking because that is you know, where I think things are going in the future, ultimately. Yeah, that's, and it's another, it's just the next domain. Uh, if we're, if we're creating a virtual force, you know, if, if we're doing cyber forces, then you have to also think of space. Uh, and that's, it. It's just, I think, the next logical step of where we're going. But one thing that you were talking about, too, was uh, with the, so now we have the alliance is now it looks like it's been rejuvenated. Uh, nobody can imagine now it being replaced by a, the French were looking to replace it with a, a European uh, you know, army that seems to have sort of fallen apart. I have a theory, and I've mentioned it a couple of times, though, that the traditional power centers of Europe was actually a Stockholm, Warsaw, Vilnius. You know, you had the the Polish, Lithuanian, uh, and the the Swedish you know, were really the power centers, and I think we're sort of seeing a reestablishment of that. Uh, maybe a shift of security coming into intelligence going more to the east and the north. That's really interesting, and. Um, really makes sense in terms of it leaps forward and in intelligence being driven by necessity. So the Baltics are so aware of and conscious of their own security and vulnerability right now with Russia. Um, so it, it seems logical that they would want to play a key role in ensuring NATO's strength and forward looking. What do you see as a future for NATO? Uh, do you see it? Because there are, I mean, people have looked at and they've talked about Ukraine, they've talked about Georgia, they've talked about other countries of possibly including into it. And they've also talked about the, the, the Chinese have talked about the incursion of NATO into the Pacific and have said, you know, wait a minute, you guys are a North Atlantic treaty organization. I don't remember seeing Pacific in, the, in, your, in your charter, but where do you think that's going? It's a great question. I think um, it's, I want to be cautiously optimistic without painting too rosy a picture, but we have seen that when there was a serious threat to sovereignty in Europe, NATO did take collective action. Um, but what we see, or what I see with a few different structures, we've talked about NATO and Five Eyes, is this idea that 
once the relationships are there, once the structure exists, it gets leveraged in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, and so uh, quickly on, on the Five Eyes point, I've seen people talking about Five Eyes as though it's an economic alliance. And mm. it originated in signals intelligence entities sharing SIGINT, <laughs> sharing decrypts, uh, which is so far from being a political entity or economic market. But once you have that structure in place, then people look at how they can leverage it in different ways. So I think with NATO, we are seeing this idea of there is a common interest, there are common security goals, so it can be leveraged for political pressure in different ways. Uh, we see Turkey holding the Trump cards because of the need for, uh, for unanimity for new members. Turkey has been able to pressure Sweden, uh, but also members have been able to pressure Turkey uh, in order to extract concessions and allow permission for Sweden to join NATO. So it's, so Michael, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think it's really interesting to see how this military alliance can be leveraged for political negotiations and political objectives among the members. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting with NATO is, or one of many things that's interesting with NATO, is that there are articles that require unanimous agreement on certain things, but there's so much else the alliance can do with a subset of member states. So I think people know generally that NATO conducts military exercises. We certainly have been seeing that in the news with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but um, I think it's less known that they conduct intelligence exercises. And that doesn't necessarily include all 31 member states. It includes a subset of the membership that has the capability and the interests in doing it. Um, so a lot of what I see with NATO is it has to be the lowest common denominator I'd say the least trusted member still has to be involved, but there are certain activities they can engage in that doesn't include the membership. And I think that's where we see a lot of action taking place. To your first point, what I think is, again, you know, this really fascinating comparison is with any novel communication or medium uh, that comes, you know, into, into general use, you have no control but you can guarantee that it will be used for purposes not intended. And that's something you see in like diffusion of innovations. There's always a, an unintended application of your novel medium. And so I think just like with any sort of communications, people are always looking for how they can leverage it for other things. And that has upsides and downsides. You know, I mean, look at social media. That's, that's got some downsides, <laughs> but um, it's it's interesting though. I think it's very telling about the the members in an organization how they then see the potential, because it's so much more than what the original designers would ever imagine. Um, and it's it's cool to see that hold true. I guess even even in this circumstance. Definitely. And this is why I find we can learn so much from the work that's been done on institutions um, within international relations, for example, where um, once the institution's in place, as you say, you don't know where it's going to go. And it can be leveraged in so many different ways once you have people in the room. And I think we've probably all seen this in our workplaces of how often has it been just the right person was in the right room at the right time and you start leveraging them. So this is what's happening on a massive scale of once you already have the infrastructure in place and the partners at the table, it can go in various different directions. It's serendipitous. Uh, it, 
I would say, just to go back to one quick thing that you had said about, you know, some people saying that uh, Five Eyes was an economic uh, idea and we don't see it that way. Isn't that because the French would look at it the, as, as being economic, right? Well, no, because the French would look at the French see that there's nothing wrong with using intelligence to further your national, your, your, your national economic goals. And when we're talking about it's funny because when you're talking about espionage, usually people are talking about Iran, they're talking about Russia, China, North Korea, but there's also France usually comes up as one of the big players. Um, Israel, you know, comes up as one of the big players of people spying on it. Of course, the United States doesn't spy on anybody, everybody, you know, everyone's our friends, right? No, we spy on everybody. So, um, just just making the point that it just it would seem that if you're culturally inclined to look at his intelligence or you don't have the same, I guess, um, you don't have the same concerns about how to use intelligence. You just assume then that your 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 allies and opponents are using intelligence the same way. Definitely. And um, it's a great point that um, friendly states spy on each other as a matter of course. We had the kerfuffle several years ago, the idea that um, the U.S. was... Uh, the NSA was tapping the German chancellor's phone. And I believe one of her predecessors said, oh, I just assumed that all my communications were being intercepted. Um, this idea that it's necessary to publicly express outrage when this comes to the surface, but really this is happening under the surface all the time. And so going back to what we were talking about with what is unusual about Five Eyes, the fact that those entities genuinely don't spy on each other is quite remarkable and I think for many people hard to believe. Well, we learned some important lessons because I think that the the beginning of signals intelligence was just, we've always had, I think, human intelligence. I mean, we've just looked at people and tried to guess their motives, but we've, with the dawn of radio, the Marconi, and looking at um, signals intelligence came into its own in the First World War. I think with the British, and then uh, we began maintaining some semblances. But a lot of governments got rid of that capabilities. There's a famous line, I think Henry Stimson, who was the secretary. You know, gentlemen yes. do not read other gentlemen's mail, kind of thing. When uh, so the U.S. Right. got rid of and, it, and actually the U.S. government had a relationship with uh, Western Union, where they were having uh, cables being sent directly to this. This well, it was. It, it was based on a French and British model of signals intelligence, but then we sort of lost it, but then we regained it. And that's what allowed us to be able to see some things about, you know, breaking the Japanese codes and, and helped us in the war. But, but there's always that sense too, that I think people are always concerned about intelligence. And we, it's not as the fact that Five Eyes has lasted as long as it has, NATO has lasted as long as it has, flies in the face, I think, of a lot of skepticism and also a lot of concern about, you know, the obvious, these things can be abused or these things no longer serve a purpose or, you know, why are we doing these types of things? So it is amazing. <laughs> well, um, there was a great point and to draw a distinction between the two that certainly don't want to suggest Five Eyes and NATO are the same. They're fundamentally quite different. NATO has the visible commitment of GDP, of a percentage mm. of GDP, um, and so it's much more in the public consciousness in terms of why are we investing in this? That's not something that Five Eyes and other under the surface Intel cooperation mechanisms share. Um, but NATO with the commitment of personnel and troops very visibly 
uh, and economic resources falls under much different scrutiny and there are much different questions. That okay, I just had one question because uh, Maria, you just brought up something a little bit earlier and we were talking about the AUKUS, the AUKUS, and though that how AUKUS we saw, and this might be another thing too, um, why the French feel so, you know, kind of bad about things. I mean, we, the nuclear deal that we did with Australia where we're going to build nuclear submarines, um, but that was through AUKUS. But now you're seeing also the relationship between Japan and Australia that's coming out of all of this. And that's building, I think, the bedrock of, uh, I think, of another alliance that's now more focused on China. Definitely. I was going to say, again, going back to this idea of crisis prompting sharing, a threat can prompt much greater cooperation, this awareness of mm -hmm. threat. Um, so that permeates everyone we've been talking about in terms of the existing intel cooperation, the existence of private sector intelligence. Um, if there is a threat that's top of mind for decision makers, then you're going to see a response usually. And so absolutely, we're seeing geopolitical partnerships deepening because of this common threat. So then is it is it right to infer from what you're saying that that sort of as far as the intelligence network, more broadly speaking, things seem to be getting better. Would you say there's, it sounds like in some ways there's almost a more standardization or expectation of cooperation or collaboration or absolutely not? It's <laughs> an interesting question. I, I would be hesitant to see that, even though I, I wish it were true, but I would look at it more as very few elements are truly new. And what we see is more, not quite, it's really not cycles. There's no consistency, but um, there are certain factors geopolitically that lead to resurgences or renewed mm -hmm. commitments. So I think we see the level of stability when it comes to certain cooperation, such as Five Eyes, mostly with caveats like what I mentioned earlier with New Zealand and with uh, Canada had a naval intelligence officer, Jeffrey Paul de Lille, who was selling secrets to the Russians and that caused problems for Canada being a trusted <laughs> partner. But aside from those blips, we see this consistency with Five Eyes, but Five Eyes is not mm -hmm. the norm. Five Eyes is unusual. And so I would say we do see more threat-based, crisis-based, mutual interest-based cooperation that isn't as institutionalized a mm -hmm. lot of the time. Um, and that's normal and we're going to see that. So in terms of positive trends, we're seeing one now with NATO in response to the threat mm -hmm. of Russia invading Ukraine. Uh, there was cooperation in anticipation of the invasion. We haven't even talked about the countering of prospective Russian deception, the proactive disclosures of intelligence that took Ooh, place. Can we talk about that? Um, before <laughs> the invasion. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the most remarkable elements of this whole story. The fact that the White House National Security Council greenlighted this declassification of information to of intelligence to reveal Russia's game plan before Russia enacted it. So then um, if Russia attempted what they did in 2014 in terms of, uh, Michael, I think you used the phrase little green men, but the Plausible idea Plausible deniability. Of, yeah. um, exactly. That was ripped away by Western intelligence proactively disclosing um, in a way that we haven't seen much in history. So that's new and that's promising, although it does then raise concerns in terms of safeguarding sources mm -hmm. and methods of uh, this can't be the norm. We can't get to a place where 
unless there's intelligence that's disclosed, then we don't believe mm-hmm. it. <laughs> then we don't believe what they're saying. So that would be my concern in terms of the precedent that's been set. And we don't know that yet. It's too early to know what precedent's been set here. But it was remarkable and it was promising that that um, when push came to shove, that they were able to declassify and um, reveal intelligence in a way that really helped combat Russia. It's probably. usually the protection of sources and methods, right? So it's. Mm-hmm. I think that is that is the magic. And Michael knows that I just stand on my communication soapbox day in and day out. But of a really close collaboration between Intel and communications that you can leverage intelligence in a way that is strategic and that that isn't just about sharing it so much, although you have to be cautious to not burn your bridges. Uh, at the same time, it can be very powerful from a strategic communication perspective. I love that. I was going to say that that's usually not the intelligence side of the house. That's the decision makers who are using mm-hmm. the intelligence. So on the Intel side, as Michael mentioned, you always want to protect sources and methods, but you provide that information and then it's a political decision as to how it's used. And it's important for that relationship to work. In that case, it worked very effectively. Um, it pulled away yes. all. Uh, it pulled away all the plausible de- plausible deniability. Um, and one of the interesting things now is we've seen uh, the Russians have dropped even the pretense that Wagner Group was a independent entity. Uh, that's another thing I think that's come out, and I think it's because part of that, my opinion, is because. Uh, the preponderance of evidence that was being presented, I think, through intelligence and through intelligence sharing was showing that to be it, it was no it was no reason to maintain the charade. Exactly. Yes, it didn't stop the invasion, but it certainly removed, as you said, the plausible deniability and and uh, people could see under the surface of what was going on in Russia much more than we could before. So- or evidence of what people <laughs> This is true. This is true. So what are you watching now? What is What are the things that you're really paying attention to as far as um, any, any shifts in alliances? Or um, obviously, I think that this example of kind of outing Russia is certainly worth watching and unique. Um, but is there anything else that you're paying close attention to um, related to Five Eyes or otherwise? Absolutely. I would say three elements. So one related to the uh, what we just talked about with intelligence prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine is cases in which intelligence influenced policymaking or policymakers were able to leverage intelligence for outcomes. So always interesting to see that it is not that common that those would uh, reach the surface, reach the news. And so Certainly, I'll be watching to see if we see that more frequently in the aftermath of the successful employment of intelligence in the invasion of Ukraine. I'm skeptical that it's a paradigm shift of any sort, uh, but we'll see, especially with open source. Uh, something we didn't talk about was the idea that often intelligence gleaned through covert collection can then be validated through open source, and then you can act as though that was what you were using all along in order to protect sources and methods. But you have that underlying classified information that really underscores for you that it's accurate. Um, so so I would say employment of intelligence publicly or openly for political or policymaking objectives, that would be one. Um, the second would be I'm watching 
the issue of membership in NATO, which is a much more dynamic one than I think I would have expected a few years ago. So watching what happens with Sweden, with Turkey, with uh, members in NATO that have engaged in some democratic backsliding. So um, Hungary and Turkey are both examples of countries that wouldn't necessarily be part of NATO if it were formed today. We haven't really talked about the idea of all the entities we've talked about in this conversation, would they have the same members if they were formed today? And I would say NATO wouldn't. So watching what's going on with membership and also with existing members able to uh, green light or stop new members from entering. So watching all of that play out. I have an I have a, a a question that shows my ignorance, but have have any countries ever left NATO? Okay, I didn't think so. It's no. like, mm, am I guessing? It's a lot of reward to being in NATO, and um, it it's hard for me to envision the benefit of leaving. It's kind of like marriage and divorce too. Like it, it's easy to get married. It's harder to get divorced. Maybe uh, I would s- no no I you know I don't disagree with that I would say that in just in the cases that it it took so much effort to get into it, it, it's like it's it's so hard to get into the EU it's so hard to get into NATO it's so hard to get into these processes and the benefits so far outweigh you'd really have to be extremely short sighted or just you know completely wanting to reject I think the the overall. Uh, the system, and I, I haven't seen that happening. Um, that makes in, total in sense. Countries. Yeah, and also there's a the idea of the benefits outweighing the costs, especially if there's limited enforcement mechanism. If, for example, you aren't spending two percent of GDP. Um, so, Michael, you mentioned the EU, which, as we know, has lost a prominent member recently. But a difference there would be the supranational organization, the nature of the EU being a supranational government entity where countries are relinquishing an element of sovereignty to be part of that overarching structure. And NATO is not like that. It's an alliance in which you still have entirely autonomous member states. So they aren't relinquishing as much in terms of their own governance to be part of it. Agreed. And the other part too is that you have, I think there's also a lot more, um, it's a lot more open, I think, in NATO. People just assume that a NATO country is attacked, that everybody's going to pile on. Uh, I think it's under it's Article 5 or Article 7. I can't remember right off the top. It's which article it is for self-defense, but 5. There we go. Five. I knew it was one of those guys, single digits. Uh, Article 5. So, um, you know, it's not necess- It's not a given that all the NATO countries are going to, you know, contribute to the self-defense. It's just that's the idea. You know, we're, we're together for our own self-defense and we would do so, these types of things. Um, which is why I think Eastern Europe and the Baltics are becoming much more, I think, it's sort of, I call it the Goonies scenario. You know, no one's coming. We're on our own kind of thing. Uh, we have to take care of ourselves. You know, we can't rely on these other countries necessarily. Um, I do think that they still accept that the United States will come. And they're trying to show that by, I think, by increasing their defense spending and showing their willingness to put their money where their mouth is. Um you know, we'll see. I think that's that may be where the future, or you know, where you know, I think where NATO will have its strength, and that's why I think the North and the Baltics will be the the new axis of power. Um, I'm sorry, Berlin. Sorry, Paris. Uh, but you know, right now it's not. Maybe your time is not now. Maybe it's their time. So, absolutely, and we're seeing 
somewhat newer members of the Alliance that are playing that role. It's not the original members. It's, as you said, the, the Baltic, the former Soviet satellite states that are really invested in this. The final point I wanted to make in response to your question, Kate, regarding what I'm watching is the relationship between the intelligence community and the administration, particularly in the US, mm -hmm. but in, in any country, really, that idea of is the intelligence policymaker nexus effective? Is it working? And um, we saw in the US the erosion of trust between the commander in chief and the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have that now. But um, that's something I'm constantly watching for is what is the relationship between the intelligence community and the key decision makers, because that's going to affect the overall effectiveness of how intelligence can inform policymaking and support national security. Definitely. I think certainly in the private sector, Michael and I have both borne witness, I think probably most folks have, to the how the value of intelligence decreases significantly when no one's listening to it. <laughs> There's definitely, yeah, it, it takes two to tango. Um, you can have all the intelligence in the world, but if, if no one's going to pay any attention to it, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. I was just going to say, well, maybe a question would be then is that you know, we talk about building trust and we're talking also about in we're talking about public sector and also private sector. Um, as for the layperson who's coming in and looking at intelligence, what would you tell people why intelligence is important? Why should why should a company that makes widgets have to worry about intelligence? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I love that question as a note to end on. Intelligence provides insight, and ideally it provides insight in advance that allows decision makers to make the right decisions or make the most informed decisions in a world of uncertainty. So what we've seen with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with the COVID-19 pandemic, with, as you said, the military coup that just happened in West Africa, is proactive intelligence can help avoid being caught by surprise or at least ensure that there was some scenario planning, even if, as we saw in the case of companies with Ukraine, the scenario was assessed as unlikely, at least part of the organization had already considered the possibility. And so ideally, there was some conversation that took place in terms of the ramifications, what it would mean. So maybe a crisis management team in the private sector example had played out and said, we don't think Russia is actually going to invade Ukraine, but if they did, what would it mean for our Ukrainian employees? What would it mean for our supply chain? And so forth. So there are some cases where companies had those conversations. And then when it became clear that Russian troops were approaching the border with Ukraine, they knew what they would do mm -hmm. in response. And they had some sort of plan in place. So um, if we look geopolitically, the same thing plays out. Again, we can use Russia and Ukraine, the idea that Western intelligence had flagged this and policymakers listened to it. Um, so what mattered there was we weren't caught by surprise. We didn't see the um, commander in chief here in the US. We didn't see the British prime minister saying we had no idea this was going to happen. Uh, we saw the NATO member states already aware of the likelihood that Russia was going to invade, the pretense they were going to invade under, so forth, and they were able to respond. So at all levels, we see this that intelligence provides insight that can support better decision-making in a world of uncertainty. That's a great answer. Yeah, that is that is something that most 
of folks in our roles are are highly focused on, which is becoming less reactive and being more proactive. And intelligence is the enabler for that. That's how you can do that is by looking forward and by listening carefully. You get the information you need to be proactive, to plan, to, you know, to come up with scenarios, to take preventative measures. You know, companies in the private sector and the government spend so much money and time and energy responding and reacting. And you look at a lot of corporations and their crisis teams are very robust, whereas their risk groups are cobbled together. You know, it's 20% of five different people's jobs. If you, if you reverse that, you would be saving so much money you'd also be working so much smarter and your strategy would be so much more sound. I could not agree with that more. Like I'd like to get that tattooed on my forehead. I think that that, that is absolutely <laughs> um, an important, important perspective that I would like everyone in the world to hear and feel and believe. So thank you for that. Thank you also for joining us. This has been a blast. The time has flown by really, really thoughtful, wonderful perspective to bring to it. And I think it, it, it sheds a different perspective on some of the geopolitical things we've been talking about. And so learning more about how, how that fabric comes together and how that works, I think is really uh, valuable. Um, and I think people are going to love to hear it. We're going to go ahead and post uh, some of Maria's publications on the website and certainly we can we can share any questions that we get we'll share with you and and we can get back to to folks if they if they want to know more but this has just been an incredibly exciting episode so thank you again for joining us thank you kate thank you michael it's been such a pleasure talking with you you said you'd like there's other things we can talk about in the future so we have to have you on again so you can talk about those things definitely Hopefully we didn't scare you away. Not at all, but I look forward to hearing many more uh, voices <laughs> on your podcast and for you of many other illustrious guests. So I look forward to sitting and oh, listening wonderful. to them talking with you in future. Well, you're you're guest number one, I think. So, but you have the honor of being guest number one. And we so are there you go. so happy about that. That is quite an honor. Yes. Well, thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of the Canary Group. If you like us, please subscribe and give us five stars on your favorite listening app. Have something you'd like us to dig into? You could reach us at info at canarygroup.org. You can also find us online at www.canarygroup.org and on social media at canarygroup.org. Canary Group.